0: You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad you're here. And we are talking about a heavier topic, um, human trafficking. And this is a subject that I've touched on a few times when I've had um, OUR Rescue on and um, Marisol Nichols on to discuss her work with OUR. Um, It's just something that I keep coming back to, and I'm not exactly sure why, I just feel a pull in my heart to share this information with you, to educate as many people as possible so that we can work together to end human trafficking and to bring so many people out of this cycle of abuse and victimization. Um, I don't know, I just, I'm using this platform to talk about this, and it's just something that, I don't know, I just feel very pulled uh, to do. So this week, I'm honored to share my platform with Alexandra Ford, and we're delving into her powerful origin story as a survivor of human trafficking. Now, she, in this conversation, unveils the pivotal moment where she realized that she was actually a victim of human trafficking, and it wasn't just a domestic abuse situation. She is sharing key insights on common misconceptions surrounding trafficking as someone who has and was actually a victim of this, she herself didn't know until she truly began to understand what it was and what it wasn't. So we're talking about those common misconceptions and crucial signs to be vigilant about in your own community. Now, we also talk about the importance of fostering a safe and supportive community environment so that survivors can come forward and can end this cycle of abuse and exploitation. So this is a powerful conversation. Um, Kudos to her for Speaking about this, for being an advocate and a speaker on this issue, it's heavy. It's not fun to talk about. But again, as we head into a more digital world and our children are growing up with phones, basically from the time they can talk, um, this is something that we all need to be aware of. And to be vigilant about because it's not going anywhere, if anything, it's just growing. So with that, we as parents, as mothers especially, have to have our eyes open. We have to wake up. We have to know that this is happening in every single community in the country, in the world, probably. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode, for sharing it out to everyone you know, um, and just seeing, seeing ways where you can be more active in your community um, and even in your home to, to have the difficult conversations that it's going to require uh, to fight this evil. Um, so thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this uh, episode out. And uh, please enjoy this episode with Alexandra Ford. Well, hello, Alexandra. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here.
1: Hi, and thank you very much for having me.
0: Absolutely. When your agent reached out with this as a potential topic, I said, yes, I definitely want to talk about human trafficking and your very personal story. Um, before we get into the work that you're doing now, can you take us through your origin story and the events in your life that led you to becoming a speaker and an advocate against human trafficking? I can.
1: Does everybody have their popcorn? Like it's. Yeah. Uh, it, t- it takes a minute to try and go through it, but I will try and um, keep it as succinct as possible. So it helps a little bit to start if I kind of popcorn around a little bit. So we don't just start, you know, I was born and then this happened because those stories can get a little boring, but I was trafficked when I was 20 years old, um, by my boyfriend. And, uh, I didn't actually find out I was trafficked until I was in my thirties. Um, and that was really what triggered a lot of the work I do now. Now to dial it back a little bit, because obviously I wasn't dropped on this earth at 20 years old, like, you know, I had 20 years of life before that. So what happened and how did I end up in a situation where I was being trafficked by my boyfriend? So interestingly enough, um, when I was little, you know, my first 10 years of life were absolutely normal, Uh, you know, quote, unquote, unquote, my parents were together. We lived in a beautiful house in a, you know, lovely suburban neighborhood. Kids played in the streets. You know, I had an older brother, um, he did swimming. I, t- or competitive swimming. I tried to, I, mm-hmm. I, was, turns out I'm not sporty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, by the time 10 or 11 hits, like as with every kid, we're trying to figure out like what our thing is. And some kids kind of figure it out early on. They're very creative or they're very sporty or whatever it is. And I really hadn't quite figured out what my thing was. Um, and I had a teacher who. One day in class, uh, when I was about 11 years old, I think, read us a story, Um, and the story was about child labor and exploitation, and I had never heard of such a thing. Um, I was a really, really intelligent kid, so I I knew, you know, there was a world outside of my own, and some people were more or less fortunate, and, and different things happened, but to hear about, you know, kids in sweatshops making clothes, like, I just couldn't fathom that, so... It was actually then that I found my thing and it turns out my thing is advocacy work because at 11 or 12 years old, um, myself and two friends started the first Oakville, we lived in Oakville, so first Oakville chapter of a uh, still young organization called Free the Children, which later became We Charity um, and was behind a massive movement of kids helping kids uh, across the globe. Um, But at this point, it was just still very small. And we, instead of going to like our first school dance, we're knocking on doors, collecting signatures for a petition to send to our Canadian government, um, requesting that they strengthen uh, laws to protect, uh, you know, materials coming in that might be made by child labor or child exploitation. So here I am, I'm pretty sure my parents, you know, are just like high-fiving each other each night being like, we've won parenting. (laughs) Like our child, you know, doesn't hang at the mall. She, she sets up a booth at the mall to teach people about child labor and trafficking. And she's speaking to whatever it was, city councils or something like that. You know, like we, you know, brush our shoulders off. We've done parenting. She's Mm -hmm. good. Um, But unfortunately for me, to put it lightly, my best friend's uncle actually began sexually assaulting me uh, shortly thereafter when he began grooming me, I think when I was about 13 um, and the assaults began shortly thereafter and they lasted throughout pretty much all of my teenagehood. Now, that really sent my life, you know, on an entirely different path. I kept up appearances quite well. Um, this isn't a movie. There isn't some, uh, suddenly a montage where I go from being this, like, you know, studious kid with buck teeth and a unibrow to, you know, suddenly wearing black eyeliner and and, you know, lots of black clothes and metal studs. Like, it wasn't obvious. I was still a good kid. I still got good grades. I stopped really investing in the advocacy work. And I started doing drugs. But I started doing them, you know evenings and weekends or after school. Like I always made sure I attended school once I got to high school. Um, And though I was definitely spiraling down this negative path, I I managed to keep up appearances pretty well. Now, the criminal justice system got involved at some point with that friend's uncle um, and we ended up in a court case. And that is really what took that like kind of tenuous hold I had on on keeping up appearances and and really living in the dark underbelly that I kept kind of dipping my toe in. Um, Because it felt for the first time like I was being brutalized, which is awful to say maybe after having been abused for six years at this point. But while I was experiencing the abuse, I could tell myself stories about it. I could tell Mm -hmm. myself that maybe I was mature and and it was a clandestine relationship or something. And once the criminal justice system got involved, it became very uh, glaringly clear to me that it was not. And I was a victim of abuse. And I just, I kind of went off the rails and I started dating very purposely started dating the town drug dealer. Um, I'd known his twin brother who had been my drug dealer. And when this guy got out of jail and, you know, I was working at a tanning salon, I graduated high school at this point. And he came into my salon and showed interest in me and I knew who he was. So I was like, let's do this. This sounds like a great idea. And in dating him, I was doing meth at that point. He was dealing meth. Um, And I knew there was rumors about him. I knew he was dangerous and all of that. And that just sort of added to the attraction. So when he first told me, you know, we're doing more drugs than we're selling. You know, we need to supplement our income. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, I get to elevate my status. No longer am I just the wifey, right? Like no longer am I just someone who gets to sit there and shut up and, and really not have a role. Now I get to take an active role in our business entrepreneurial, you know, life. Um, and it started off really small with him just saying like, hey, you know, if I get to steal a couple of things, whether it's at a bar or house party, um, we can pawn them. So if you could distract people, that would be great. And so I did. Um, and everything progressed really quickly from there. And it wasn't long until you know, one day we're partying at a strip club as we did. And all of a sudden I feel like my feet aren't on the ground anymore. And the next thing I know I'm being deposited on a stage and he's saying, don't get down until you've made me some money. Mm -hmm. And I found out also he was drugging me and taking pictures of me and doing God knows what with those pictures. I I found out he may have been selling them. Like I I don't have all the answers. I don't necessarily want them at this Mm -hmm. point. Um, And so after three attempts on my life, uh, thankfully unsuccessful, I did finally manage to escape. Um, And he did find me about a year later. We were then embroiled in a court case. And completely unrelated to me, he ended up dead. He got himself stabbed. Oh, wow. And so that was um, almost four years to the day after I met him. Uh, including the very short time we dated, the time I escaped, the time he found, like all of that. And like I said, when I first started this story is it would take another almost 10 years until I understood what happened to me was human trafficking. And in that 10 years, not only did I experience that court case against him, I got a bachelor degree in criminology. I got a postgraduate in victimology. I did an honors diploma in community and justice services. I worked with victims, with offenders, uh, in prevention and rehabilitation. I did. I learned everything I could at the intersection of crime and human rights and helping people. And I still had absolutely no idea that what happened to me wasn't just um, domestic violence and a series of my own bad choices.
0: Mm. God. And uh, do you remember a crucial moment when you are researching and learning and getting these degrees where you did have that realization, like that aha moment where you just all of the pieces kind of came together and you understood your own story that much more?
1: I do. And it wasn't from my own research, Um, it was in 2019. I was living in Wyoming, uh, just moved there, pregnant for four months pregnant or so with my first child. Um, My husband and I had moved there. And um, I had found out that someone in town was doing some anti-trafficking work. And I had emailed her and said, hey, you know, I'd love to meet with you, blah, 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 visa restrictions. I'm Canadian, so I couldn't work. But like could I volunteer? Here's all my school back, educational background, work history. But like, hey, I know absolutely nothing about human trafficking, but I do know a fair bit about, you know, the intersection of crime and human rights and, and all of this. So I think I'd, I'd be a quick study. So we met up for coffee and uh, her name was Terry Markham. And I, I, God, I can't, I remember thinking Telling her, you know, I, I know nothing about human trafficking, but I do have my own story of domestic violence. And then it was like being outside of myself, watching myself word vomit and telling her these things of my story that I had literally never told anyone else, not the police, not my friends, nobody, because it was so wrapped up in shame for me that I had been on stage at a strip club or that I had, you know used my body to make money um but it just it I just like word vomited all over her I blame pregnancy brain I don't know the boundaries (laughs) were down she felt safe and I Mm -hmm. told her all of this stuff and I remember she got quiet and you know she looked at me and said you know Alexandra what you're describing to me sounds a lot like human trafficking And I remember laughing and being like, no, (laughs) no, I've seen the movie taken, right? Like Mm -hmm. I was not kidnapped at no point was I held in a basement at no point was I shackled or not free. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I'm an idiot. Like I made, I made a lot of really bad choices and she was so kind and so patient with me and, and kind of gave it a minute and told me her origin story, how she got into the work And we came back to it. And I remember so clearly like leaving that meeting and just being like, what, Mm -hmm. what, what? And then for a little bit being really angry because I had just gotten comfortable with this, like, I'm a survivor of domestic violence thing, ribbon hat, purple ribbon. Like what I, I was like, okay, this is me. I'm this I can do. And now there's someone who so kindly is like kind trying to exchange that and be like yes, but, um, and human trafficking felt so big, and it felt so, it was that thing that happened to those people over there, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't that thing that happened to a kid from, you know, suburbia in in. Canada like it, so it took me a long time to really figure out like how to wear that label how to put that hat on and and not want to w- rip it off constantly um and then when I found that I, I I was like this it's true though and suddenly it makes sense suddenly because I was I was a smart kid and it's not about being dumb or smart but like how did I get myself into like I wouldn't do that that's not that doesn't seem like something I would do, but I did, but he never had a gun to my head. So why mm-hmm. did I do it? And so now as I learned more about trafficking and I learned about coercive control and I learned about trauma bonding and I learned about cognitive dissonance, all of these things, it was like putting the hat on that felt so, of like the label of, of survivor of human trafficking that had felt so uncomfortable suddenly fit. And it was the thing I had been missing and all of that blame and shame that I had carried for 10 years for being stupid enough, quote unquote, to get involved with that guy, to get myself into those situations, to, you know, have, get that reputation, all of that. All of that blame and shame suddenly wasn't mine anymore. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was no longer mine. And there was this moment where, like, and this is all quite close together. And I remember thinking, well, hold on a goddamn second. I've been to court against my abuser. Most, many, many, many people don't get that chance. Um, good or bad experience, but still don't have that chance, which means there was a full criminal investigation into what happened. Um, I have a degree in criminology, I have a degree in victimology community and justice services, I've worked in this, like, if I don't know or understand what human trafficking is, and it happened to me, and I work in this field, and I have all this knowledge, how the hell is anyone else supposed to yeah. even have any idea of what trafficking is? And so from there, um, Terry and I co-founded Uprising, which is our Wyoming-based um nonprofit that focuses on prevention education and community awareness and outreach and then when I moved back to Canada I started The Laughing Survivor so I could continue to speak out and share my story and kind of use it as this point of like no no no, I'm not shaming anyone for not knowing about this because of all people I should have and I didn't Mm. so let's learn together.
0: I love that I love that and that just you can tell that you're a speaker and you can tell that you've shared your story because you do say it in such a clear way where I'm listening and I'm following it. And and you're right. It's like, how did this bright, you know, precocious girl end up here? And it's like, how the how would that happen? And it's like, because of these circumstances and these people in their coercive ways. So can you talk about some of the biggest misconceptions that you think that you had, that the public probably has, you know, the woman tuning into this about human trafficking? And how can you educate all of us so that we know exactly what it is and what to look for so we can protect our kids and our communities.
1: Absolutely. The biggest misconception is something I already said, it's that thing that happens to those people over there. Whatever that looks like that sentence, you know, looks like in your brain, it is a misconception that we all have that it's it doesn't happen here, it's not in my small town, it's not in my big city, it's not in Canada, it's not in America. It is a problem for other people. So we need to erase that idea. It is not a problem for other people. It happens everywhere. Um, I think the other big misconception is that it looks like the movie Taken, right? It looks like somebody who's traveling and gets kidnapped. It looks like stranger kidnapping. When we know that... I I, I hate statistics because they're always so wrong when you're talking about sort of... Um, underbelly crimes but I will say of all the the survivors I know um in the field and stories I've heard it is I love one percent one percent of trafficking happens through stranger abduction 99 wow. percent is someone you know love and or trust um and that may be someone who was a stranger originally and they found you online but they took the time to grow your trust your child, usually a child, but grow trust and they become someone you know, love and trust. Um, and I think the third one that is critical is that victims will self-identify as victims of trafficking because so many of us, so many of us had no, not only did we have no idea we were being trafficked while it happened, we actively spoke out about how much fun we were having and why we loved our jobs and like, maybe like, well, you're a prude. Like, yeah, I use my body, but like, this is the new age, you know, sexuality is freedom. I should have the right to do with my body what I want. Like Mm -hmm. just sort of shouted from the rooftops about how much fun they were having or how much they enjoyed what they were doing. Um, And so many of us are unable to self-identify and even unable to self-identify until years after exiting where you're finally able to look back and go that was awful I didn't want to do that I had no choice I was coerced it was a life or death situation um, or it felt like that Mm -hmm. or whatever the situation is so I think those would be the the main things it's not stranger abduction you know it's not a problem just for other people in other countries it happens right here um and victims more often than not will not
0: self-identify yeah that's why having this conversation right now like i'm getting chills as you're speaking because it's so important you know the right person hearing this right now is going to say something that will awaken someone else and it just it puts a block almost on this continuous process of this happening to each new generation. Um, what are your thoughts on how can we as a community, as individuals foster a more welcoming, a more supportive environment so that people a can self-identify and wake up and then b feel comfortable enough, confident enough to come forward. Because again, there's so much shame and guilt involved in this. You don't want to. Yeah. Uh,
1: Language, how we talk about uh, people who sell sex, um, you know, instead of calling someone a prostitute, they may be a prostituted person. Um, And it's not just language specifically around commercial sex, but language around how we shame or don't shame um, people who are, in un- unsafe situations, like how they get themselves there, mm-hmm. like that's sort of, you know, then it's like, oh, well, yeah, people are going to make, you know, like I got myself here. We, a lot of us are thinking that. How could I, how could I be so dumb? How could I get myself in this situation? I was, I was, I, I was okay. And I don't know the point at which I wasn't okay. But when I got to that point, there was no dialing back yeah. to where, to to like undo the series of, event, of events that have gotten me here. Um, and I think also changing the language or simplifying the idea of what trafficking looks like on the regular, especially, um, domestic sex trafficking, because I think we still have this, like, like I said, I thought it was bigger. I had this idea that it was like, you know, a Russian oligarch or like a (laughs) massive motorcycle gang or, you know, a pimp the way you think of a pimp you know, think of Halloween pimp costume, like that sort of thing. It wasn't just a boyfriend who was like, hey, you're going to help me make some money. Mm. So when we simplify the idea as well, I think that's how we can start understanding. And I I will do that. And I want to say that every, I don't know if it's every now, but I would say 90% of talks that I have given, um, both to adults and to children, I have had a disclosure at the end somehow, whether it's an email sent or someone coming up to me, someone going, that's trafficking? Mm-hmm. I I think I was trafficked. Mm-hmm. Or I think I know someone being trafficked. So if we um, simplify it out of the legalese, which if you Google, you know, definition of trafficking, you're going to find definitions that, that frankly confuse me. And I work in this field. Um, but it's basically compelling or coercing someone to provide services, either labor or sex, if we're talking about labor trafficking or sex trafficking, um, and a third party is profiting. So if you are over the age of 18 and you engage in commercial sex, so you do a sexual act, it does not have to be penetrative sex, but just any sex act. So it could be stripping, it could be whatever it is. And you receive something in return, could be money, could be drugs, could be shelter, could be a ride, could be anything, but something of value. That's just commercial sex, if you know, over the age of 18. As soon as that, that thing of value that is received goes to someone else, so a third party, so I get off stage and I have to hand my money over to my boyfriend, or I'm distracting people or taking someone into a bedroom to distract them and... My boyfriend's stealing stuff and he pawns it and he keeps the money. That becomes trafficking. Mm. That's as, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but I do want to use it. That is as simple as it is. I'm not saying it's easy. It is a horrific crime. But it is not necessarily a massive crime ring. It's not even somebody in a motel room with, you know, men coming in and out of the room constantly, it can be absolutely pimp-controlled sex trafficking. Um, that is something that we we see hotel rooms and, and, you know, having to make a quota and all of that. But for some others, it can literally be like, hey, babe, we're not going to make rent this month. You better go up and visit the landlord and try and, um, you know, get them to knock off a couple hundred bucks. That can be yeah. trafficking.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like the... The police that you've worked with and, and you know, worked on these things with, do you feel like they are open to combating this um, at the highest levels? Because I know so many people, went there, especially in Georgia, where I am, some high profile people just recently were caught in a sting. And so I feel like there's a lot of resistance as well at the higher levels to break down the walls and to expose how <laughs> how much this really has been happening all over the world.
1: There is resistance. And I think some of that is, and this actually could go back to answering your earlier question of like how to create safe spaces for people to come forward. Once someone turns 18, everyone has this idea of like, well, they're an adult, so they make adult choices now, right? So anyone under the age of 18, if you find out they're selling sex, first of all, that's automatic trafficking. Someone under the age of 18 cannot legally agree to commercial sex. But... Somebody doesn't just like on their 18th birthday, turn around and be like, ah, yes, I think this is what I'm going to do now. Unless there is something that they've already been doing it, or they're being manipulated into it, or they have a history of trauma, 99% of the time there's that. So when it comes to the police, I think I am seeing a shift in attitude that that I'm really positive about. Because before... And part of the reason I didn't disclose details of my story um and they the police certainly didn't ask questions when I was going through the court case against my trafficker is because in my head everyone knows police doesn't care about hookers nobody nobody cares about hookers right the police does not, they're not going to help out a stripper, right? Like, this. these are the names I was calling myself. Mm. So I'm like, unless they ask me exactly how I'm making my money, I am not answering that question. And I also had, like, a regular job as well. So it was a good friend. Like, they had reasons not to ask those questions. But I wasn't about to disclose to them. Um, and historically, the relationship between police and prostituted people has been so problematic. There's been there's so many tales of like, ah oh, well, I guess I won't write you up if you uh mm. you know, wink wink nudge nudge. And so they're being exploited by their trafficker or oh. by the system and then the people who are supposed to help them come in and exploit them because there's this idea like you do it anyway, so who cares, mm-hmm. right? So I think what I'm feeling so positive about is law enforcement who recognize not just are like how can we do great but recognize all the harm that has been done over the years and are willing to not only learn to do better but sit within that harm um so they can they can understand the people they're dealing with and understand uh why they may you know spit in the face of someone who looks like they're trying to help them. Yeah, you may be a good cop, but the seven cops that they came into contact before you maybe weren't. So when I'm training law enforcement now, I'm getting so many awesome questions of like, what helped you? What didn't? How can I be the cop you needed when you were being exploited? How, like everything from how can I place my body? Where should I sit? What can I do? Is this appropriate? Is it not appropriate? And I certainly cannot speak, like give a checklist of, yes, it's okay to sit next to them because everyone is different. But I can say, you know, if you're in uniform, right then and there, you need to find a way to make yourself look smaller. Even if you're not a big person, the uniform makes you look big. The gun on your hip makes you look threatening. You need to find a way to make yourself look non-threatening. Especially to someone who has had to gauge within seconds who is a danger, who is a physical danger to them or not, yeah. and not gauging right has had dire consequences. So, I am see, seeing that. I am seeing obviously there's cover up. Uh, uprising ran a sting operation in Wyoming uh, with law enforcement, and one of the guys arrested was an ex Wyoming senator. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah, this happens. So there is this push-pull of like, we want to expose this. We need people to understand the complexity of this. It's not just as soon as someone's 18, we wash our hands of them and say, well, if that's what you want to do, you know, all the power to you. You have to understand, you know, neuromaturation. You have to understand the complexities of trauma bonding, coercive control, cognitive dissonance. And so you have a huge group of people who, like we, are saying, hey, let us teach you about this. Let us help you unpack this to the best of your ability. And then undoubtedly, and I can't speak with detail or point fingers, but there is going to be a side of like higher ups who use these services Mm -hmm. on a regular basis or have, and don't want things exposed and don't want people to suddenly, you know, they don't want to unravel the myth of the happy hooker, right? Right. that they're just paying someone's wage like who cares it's the same thing as getting a burger I'm just helping out a hard-working person no like we have to unravel that um but when you do that suddenly these people are no longer helpful citizens mm-hmm. they are perpetrators of harm
0: right
1: so I think there's definitely some you know
0: there there's a push-pull there of of where where the truth will land and where it will come out well, be careful in your work. That's all. That's all I'll say. I know it sounds dramatic, but I'm serious. Um, we've covered a lot, and I feel already like I've learned so much. So, thank you. If there were any final message that you would want to leave with the listener, what would that be?
1: Um, this is a motherhood podcast, so I will uh, direct it that way. Please be super careful about online safety. I am not here to judge anyone who gave their kid a phone at two or is refusing to give their kid a phone until they're 12 or 20 or whatever. I'm not here to set you timelines and tell you when is good and when is bad. But um, online exploitation and sextortion is a booming business. And too often the result of that is children who unalive themselves because of the shame. And so when it comes down to, you know, I don't want to have those conversations with my kid because A, I don't want to destroy their innocence or B, it's so uncomfortable. Well, the thing is you not talking to them about it doesn't mean they're not going to learn about it. It means they're not going to learn about it from you
0: right.
1: and you're their safe space. So um, have the conversations, please. Uh, I'm trying to become more active on social media. I am a mom myself. My littles are little, they're four and two. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when balls drop, it is inevitably my social media, but follow me, um, at the laughing survivor on Instagram. I am going to be putting out lots of tips on consent, how to practice consent early and often. So it doesn't have to be that like really awkward conversation when they're 13, because you've been having it with them since they were three, um, how to practice good consent, um, like in your home with family members in ways that isn't awkward or you know makes people not ever want to come over just simple <laughs> ways that you can show your kids how they can have bodily autonomy and you can protect them uh i will be sh- sharing things about online safety how to post pictures that are safe or aren't safe um and like one last thing if you post pictures of your kids in the bathtub with an emoji covering their junk stop stop now because It does not take um, a genius to get software to just get that picture and then remove that emoji. So just crop the photo if you need to post it. Um, But yeah, I'm trying to get out all the free information I can because I, you know, if we're all making these tiny little changes, then we're all creating this safety net in every community we're in and we all get to become little community heroes and create those safe spaces. So when someone does fall through the net or finds himself in an unsafe situation, they feel confident that there is many safe people around them with whom they can disclose or have a conversation with.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your wisdom, your story with my audience today, because undoubtedly, we are creating a greater safety net and you are You're you're the guest. You're the star. You're the one starting that. So thank you so much for creating that positive ripple effect here on the show. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for using your show to talk about something that a lot of people would prefer to avoid.
0: Absolutely. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to share it out, subscribe, and leave us a review. Till next time.